Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Baseball America Draft Podcast. I'm Carlos Galazzo, joined by Peter Flaherty. Uh, we're recording this on the first day of September. It's crazy that we're already kind of into the month of September, Peter. Uh what have you been up to? How's it going? Uh, are you exhausted from the summer? What have you been What have you been up to lately? <laughs> it's been going great. Uh, just kind of enjoying the more manageable time period and a more relaxed pace. I actually just finished up the Cape Top 50 with Jeff and then a Top 100 transfer ranking piece. Um, and so I've just been catching my breath a little bit from that and excited to hop on the pod and break down another division with you for the for the draft. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've you been grinding all summer, you know, the Cape, as well as anyone from covering it for us this summer, as well as being involved um, with teams and with the league itself in the past. I, I can't imagine someone knows the Cape better than you. So I did want to touch on both that Cape list and your top 100 transfer list that you put together. Just a lot of really good stuff that you have coming out for the site. If you guys haven't checked either of those pieces out, I, I really encourage you to do so. You'll get a, a great jump start on both the 2024 draft class uh, a number of those players on the Cape list are, are prominent 2024 prospects, as well as a few underclassmen. And obviously the top 100 transfer list is is required reading for anyone who is keeping up with college baseball. So definitely check that out. Um, we will be getting into AL Central draft reviews today, our second division in our draft review series of podcasts. So that'll be fun. But before we get into that, Peter, is there anything that stood out from putting together that Cape list? Uh, let's start with the Cape list first, and then we can go into some of the transfers. Um, I've still never personally been to the Cape. Uh, I think I probably had less incentive to get up there this year, considering you and Jeff, I feel like combined, we're probably at like 80% of, of the schedule up there. But how do you think this year's talent on the Cape compared to an average year or previous years that you've been a part of? And I guess how difficult is it to evaluate players on the Cape now, just considering how much these rosters seem to really turn over and juggle with the new draft calendar and this, the schedule we have to deal with. That's a great question. And first, I think you, the Cape is a must see for you, whether it's next summer or the summer after, because whether it's for the town of players or, or just the enjoyment of the experience, it is, it's, it could not be more in your wheelhouse. It's the number one thing on my list that I have not seen. I think in baseball period, not just, not just amateur baseball, but overall baseball. Like I think, just seeing the talent there is obvious, but also experiencing the dynamic of the Cape. Everyone, it almost feels like everyone in baseball that I've talked to, especially after I'm, I'm talking to them a 
lot of these amateur scouts at like area codes or East Coast Pro, which are like these brutal all day events. People talk about the Cape as if it's like a vacation. So I'm really excited to check it out. It sounds like an awesome environment on top of having very good players. So hopefully we can make that happen. Hopefully I can come hang out with you in the Cape sometime in the future. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, the the environment is is second to none because it's so intimate. You have, for the most part, these high school fields and, and these high profile players you get to see close up. But getting into the initial question, I'd say this year compared to years past, and honestly, since the draft has been moved to July, I think the overall talent is up across the board for the full season because there are, are pretty high profile draft guys that do come up to whether it's for a couple of starts or, you know, to play 10 or so games. Um, so I'd say the overall talent is up, but after the draft, it really thins out. And that's for a number of reasons, because it's also when USA uh, gets going. And so USA, the transfer portal in the draft really gut it. And so I'd say from after the 4th of July onward, it's there are some teams that really struggle for no fault of their own for their head coach or GM. They really struggle to to kind of bring in guys and where are those, especially on the mound, like where are those nine inning day in and day out going to come from? Um, so I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest struggle is, is having pitching that's going to sustain you for a 44 game schedule. And there aren't a lot of off days. Mm. And so you're playing five, six, seven games in a row, sometimes depending on rain. So I'd say the overall talent is up, but it really, really thins out in in july and i think the main theme is is the emphasis on bats like i mean if you look at the top 50 list we built it both on prospect status but while also respecting and being cognizant of you know someone like joe yama who on a prospect list wouldn't necessarily rank high but what he did on the cape was unbelievable so that's gonna work his way into Mm -hmm. the top 10 so it's more a top 50 player list than prospect list um but I'd say hitters were definitely the theme, the theme of this summer. I'd say way more bats than arms stood out. Yeah, and I feel like in addition to the Cape specifically, but just summer college baseball, the environment in general, there are a lot of pitchers who are going to shut things down. I can't imagine the logistics of trying to piece together those innings. How much of a challenge was it for you when you were with Katuit uh, of trying to manage and just make sure you had fresh arms? And do you think the silver lining to that is that maybe you get some players who – in an ideal world where you get all the elite pitchers, maybe you get some guys who can maybe surprise people um, and weren't super highly regarded, but they get a chance to come to the Cape and uh, and kind of show what they can do. Maybe you can shine a spotlight on some lesser known arms who, who either didn't get innings during the spring for whatever reason, or were hurt and are kind of coming back and trying to catch up on innings or, or any number of factors. Like I know I'm throwing a lot at you there, but, but how, how do you kind of assess that? No, you're so in 2022, the last time, you know, I was with Katuit and helping them out, I'd say it's weird because you can't, it, it's such an interesting question. You almost had to divide the summer into three parts where you have your pre-draft team, your kind of post-regional and Omaha team, and then your late July team, where for the most part, you're just kind of scraping together guys who literally can just throw you you obviously put some emphasis on performance and and stuff that they have, but you really just need guys who can, who can be available at that point. Availability is the best ability. So I'd say that for both get to it and every team. um, And obviously nowadays every team too, but I'd say the biggest challenge was 
being able to put together a team that had as little turnover as possible. Um, and for these transition periods, you weren't left with these gaping holes. And I, mm. and I think that's a great point because like you said, it does give way for some lesser known arms or lesser known bats, but especially when talking about um, the pitching side of things, it does give an opportunity for these guys to come in and maybe make a little bit of a name for themselves or at the very least earn an invitation for the following summer. Um, and we see it year in and year out with so many players. Mm. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Makes a ton of sense. Um, I'm glad that I'm not in charge of running one of these teams. It sounds like an absolute nightmare. Although I guess the entirety of baseball's summer schedule is a bit of a nightmare. It seems like no matter what level you're involved, it is a bit of a headache. Are there any players, um, and we don't have to say just the top guys, are there any players that stood out to you in a surprising fashion or lesser known names um, who popped on the list that you think are particularly notable? Again, I would encourage everyone who's listening to read the full list because there's just a wealth of information on all these players. You, you and Jeff really broke these guys down in depth and, and paint these pictures of these players and what, what they've been doing previously, how they maybe changed on the Cape. There are a few interesting players who had some shifts in approach that I'm curious to see if that translates um, to the next spring or just more efficient strike throwing, any number of things that, that they did. But are there any names in particular that jump out to you that excite you for whatever reason? Not, not necessarily who is the best guy, because I think it sounds like Travis Pizzano was pr pretty clearly that guy this year on the Cape. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say between Travis Pizzano and Cam Smith, we've talked at length about those two guys. I'm trying to dig a little deeper. Seaver King is another one who, between mm -hmm. his spring at Wingate, entering the transfer portal with significant buzz, and then committing to Wake Forest has also become a little bit of a household yeah. name. I think the first tell one... Me if this, tell me if this one is inaccurate, but me and Ben were recently doing a podcast, and I said that Seaver King was probably the most prominent up-arrow player in the 24 class from this summer. Do you think there is any other player that, that meets, meets that level of King? Because it really feels like like his notoriety at the end of the college season compared to his notoriety now seems pretty significantly different. Yeah. I mean, I think from a stock perspective, it's hard to not have him be the biggest up arrow because at Wingate, yeah. I know that the area guys are probably on him and then maybe a few checkers were mm -hmm. on him, but I mean, he went from, I don't want to say non-prospect because he didn't like as a player, he's, he's been who he is for a little while, but he went from kind of an unknown guy to a slam dunk mm -hmm at the very least day one top 50 overall type guy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's due in part to, I mean, he tore up the Cape for the 16 games that he was there. He was at, I mean, across three games, he was on a 10 for an 11 stretch, which is just impossible. <laughs> he hit for a little bit of a, a little bit of power, explosive athlete, really, really kind of explosive operation in the box too. big time bat speed turned in 70 grade run times. Uh, the only question mark, I guess, is going to be where he is on the dirt for Wake this spring, mm -hmm. where I think it's either going to be second or third. Merrick Houston will play short, but uh, if he can improve the defense and short up a little bit, that's going to greatly benefit him if he ends up come draft time as in, in the draft room. If you can say, okay, Seaver King is a professional second baseman, there are no questions about that. I think that will greatly benefit him. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I know you were about to talk about some some of the under the radar or or just names that you that pop for you. No, you're good. I think another guy in the top ten is Cole Mathis from College of Charleston. Uh, he mm -hmm. was excellent 
in the CAA and, and tore it up in the spring, but again, was viewed more as like a top 10 round draft guy, top eight. And this summer he, he was extremely effective on both sides of the baseball. He hit 318 and was second in the league in both home runs with 11 and RBIs with 42. It's easy backspin to all fields. It's double plus, I'd say, hand speed through the zone. And then on the mound, he's, he's very relievery. I don't think he's a starter. Um, if he gets a shot to pitch professionally, it's, mm-hmm. it's an effective two-pitch fastball, curveball mix. Fastball was up to 96. Uh, I'd say the curveball flash plus. He's a really intriguing, true two-way player. And I think that it might be a little tricky with the profile because some teams are going to view him as a right-right first baseman, which limits the draft ceiling a little bit. But he does have some experience at third. If he can show he can play it somewhat effectively, I know he'll get a chance to this spring. Um, I think that's another day one guy. And then obviously Joe Oyama, who we touched on at the beginning. Really, really interesting profile with Oyama, an interesting story in general. He was born in Okinawa, Japan, came over, was a Juco guy at Merced College, tore up the West Coast League last summer, was named co-MVP. Uh, was really, really solid for a good UC Irvine team this spring, hit 317. And then this summer, he just burst onto the scene. He had 360. I think he ended up with eight total home runs, which is the most surprising part of his game, I'd say, for <laughs> someone of his, of his stature. And um, I was really, really impressed with him. It's, I mean, I'd say it's legit average power, which for someone with that frame is, is impressive. He's got above average bat to ball skills and um, isn't quite the – the defensive wizard as Riku Nishida was last summer. And that was a popular comparison this summer on the Cape kind of. Yeah. I was about to bring him up a... because when I read his, when I read Oyama's report, I immediately started to think of Nishida. So I'm glad to know that, that other people are immediately comparing the two. Maybe it's an easy comparison. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting comparison. It's two Pacific Northwest Juco guys. They both tore up the West coast league. Um, they both also tore up the Cape league. And I'd say Nishida has a better approach, back to ball skills. He's way more of a slash and dash guy who's also an above average borderline plus defender. At second, he's even been mm-hmm. using right field. Oyama, a little less polished defensively, but way more impact at the plate. So, I mean, I think when all said and done, whether he cuts a big time deal late, late on day two, um, or in that kind of 12th to 16th round range on day three, I think that's where Oyama slots in best because he's going to be 23 um, come draft time next year. And I'm sure he got some interest this year after both the spring he had at UCI and and the start to his summer at Orleans, but he was another guy that stood out. And then another smaller, more underrated name was, was Derek Clark from division two Northwood pitchability specialist through, I think 103 innings at Northwood came out and spent the entire summer with Orleans and logged another 40 innings to his name. Um, 80 to 90, an effective slider and change up. Uh, they both had miss rates over 40%. I mean, the ceiling's like as a fifth starter, but that's someone who will also get drafted in that. I'd say it would be a nice day three pick for someone. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Uh, Peter, you've been doing the bulk of the heavy lifting on the podcast so far, but I would encourage everyone to uh, go check out that list. It's, it's really good work. Uh, I'm going to ask you to continue doing a little bit more heavy lifting because I wanted to mention the top 100, uh, top 100 transfer list briefly as well. That one is led by Brady Montgomery, 
who's moving from Stanford to Texas A&M, Chase Burns, who's going from Tennessee to Wake Forest, and then Seaver King, who's going from Wingate Division II school to Wake Forest as well. So uh, early results, big winners for Wake Forest in the transfer portal. It also seems like Alabama maybe is one of the bigger losers. Two of the top 10 players that you have on this transfer list are leaving Alabama. Luke Holman is number eight, going from Alabama to LSU. Colby Shelton uh, going from Alabama to Florida. Uh, and unsurprisingly, a lot of SEC schools uh, are at the top of this list. But what was your takeaway from the transfer portal this year? Um, obviously, you have your list of impactful players here. So it feels like um, maybe doubling up to ask you who who's the most exciting player on this list, because I feel like the answer is just the guy you have number one. But again, I guess who are some who are some names that you're curious about or maybe even player organization fits that are interesting to you that we should be aware of? as we prepare for the 2024 college season. Yeah. I did one. I had a ton of fun putting this together when I was tasked with it. I, the amount of mm. time I spent tinkering and moving guys up and down I was, can't imagine. <laughs> was unbelievable. I finally settled on a top 100 after like five days of just tooling around with where these guys <laughs> would go. But I think like you said, Montgomery and Burns at the top is a really exciting uh, number one and number two. When you talk about fits for future schools, I think Chase Burns and one of the most premier arms in college baseball, maybe the best arm in college baseball in at Wake Forest with the pitching lab and Coach Muscara. That is a dangerous, dangerous combination mm-hmm. for opposing clubs. He's already up to 102 with a wipeout slider, um, solid changeup. I think getting him in that rotation with Josh Hartle and likely Michael Massey, I think it's it's going to be really difficult to not call that the top rotation in all of college baseball. Uh, I mean, very quickly, three of three of those, all three of those pitchers that you just named are in our top 50 on the board as it stands for the 2024 prospect list. So that's kind of insane. And I think you're right. I, I can't imagine another team putting together, at least on paper, uh, a more impressive starting rotation. No doubt. It's going to be very, very difficult to take two of three from Wake any given weekend. And then Montgomery, everyone kind of knows who he is at this point. Um, Perhaps the best two-way player in all of college baseball, not named Jack Caglione. Probably the best two-way player in college baseball, not named Jack. Um, But 336, hit 17 home runs, drove in 61, plus power from both sides of the plate. It's a borderline 80-grade arm in right, which is where he'll stick professionally. Um, it's honestly a pretty clean and smooth operation on the mound. Um, mm. He's got nice, easy arm action, and it's relatively easy velo. But uh, I, was super, I was super impressed with him last year as an underclassman, seeing him pitch with Team USA. And so I'm curious if this move means he'll be pitching more with Texas A&M. And I hope the answer is yes, because I really loved watching him on the mound. I know it seems like most people view him as a hitter, first and foremost, as a prospect at the next level. And based on his performance and the tools and the right field profile, I think that makes a lot of sense. But man, just in very brief looks last summer, I don't think I saw him pitch this year. I don't know if he did pitch with Team USA this year. Um, the e, Like you were saying, the ease of the operation, the fastball velocity, and I was even pretty impressed with the breaking stuff he showed. I would like to see a little bit more of him pitching, but I don't know if that's the case. No, yeah. I mean, he like you said, he'll flash a plus breaking ball, fastball's premium velocity. It's just real lack of pitchability and polish at this point, which if Texas A&M can, can have him progress in that regard, I think he'd be a really, really effective back-end guy for him. I don't know how many innings he will get, 
Um, but I mean, I, he will pitch at least a little bit. So um, he'll be really exciting going to AM. and then up and down this list, there really isn't a guy who isn't, at least in my mind, doesn't project to immediately slot in as an everyday hitter or someone who will slot into their future team's rotation or be an effective back end arm. I think what was most impressive and interesting to me and maybe a little bit of a glaring sign for the future were the amount of mid-major guys who had great first years or second years at um, their respective school and decided to transfer. Um, and I know that could be for a variety of reasons, but you look at guys like Wahiwa Aloy or Justin Lord, Ali Camarillo, Jaden Davis, Alex Lodice could kind of go on and on. And these are guys who hit really well at their mid-major schools, but decided to, to transfer to an SEC school. So um, the future of mid-major baseball and in, in retaining their high-end talent um, it's going to be really interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, it almost feels like the the path for success for those teams at this point is you don't you don't really make a name of developing players who you graduate. It's like oh, I getting I'm getting talented players who maybe for whatever reason were passed over by the Power Five schools. Let them come here, develop them, have them perform, and then they move off. Like I don't I don't think that's a terrible development model in the current state of college baseball that we have now, it's almost like a, like a Juco model where you're going to get good players. They're going to stay here for a few years, maybe, uh, but then go off to bigger conferences. I know probably the coaches aren't too thrilled with that, but I think you could still develop a pretty good rotation of, or a, a good reputation of pumping out players, even if you're not going to get them for three or four years. Yeah. And that's a really interesting angle to take. And then circling back a little bit to the Cape, um, I know that could also be a future issue for the Cape because mm. I know what go like, I mean, a, a high end mid-major talent um, is going to try and get coaxed into the portal um, up on the Cape, whether it be jokingly by his teammates or mm -hmm. it's kind of become a little bit of a recruiting ground for college coaches in general. So I know Absolutely. that, I mean, tampering is a, is a real thing and a real issue. And I think that it is going to make guys hesitant to send their, their top talent up to the Cape, but nonetheless, uh, kind of going down the list, there are a pair of Tennessee guys who I think have a chance to be really exciting or future Tennessee Vols. Dalton Bargo won number 23 hit 280 with five home runs and 23 RBIs as a true freshman at Missouri, but he tore it up in the Appy league. It's a hit over power profile. Um, I don't know if he's going to be their everyday catcher with Cannon Peebles coming in. Um, who also ranks in the top 10, but he will be a, a real quality bat that they've got. And then looking to the back end of the bullpen at number 34, and honestly, maybe a little underranked by me is Nate Sneed from Wichita mm. State. Big time arm talent, 53 Ks and 42 innings, fastball up to 100 plus break, plus slider, 53% uh, miss rate. And um, I think that those, those guys will really, really help out Coach Vitello. Yeah, awesome stuff, Peter. Again, check out this list, Top 100 Transfers in Baseball. It's up on the site now. Um, yeah, let's move on to our draft reviews. Today, we are going over the AL Central. Um, maybe not one of the most competitive divisions at the major league level this year in the draft. Uh, four of the five teams were picking among the top 15 picks, uh, three of the five in the top 10, and then you had two clubs in this division picking inside this elite group of top five talent. So, 
like our previous episode where we went through the AL East, we're going to go in current standings, go down the list. Um, the first team we have here is the Minnesota Twins. Uh, they got the final player of kind of the elite phylum of talent in the 2023 class with Wyatt Langford, uh, excuse me, with Walker Jenkins at number five overall. Let me run through, I don't know how many we did last time. I think top five round picks. I'll just run through that and then we can talk about some players uh, at more length. They took Charlie Soto, right-handed pitcher out of Florida, high school pitcher out of Florida in the supplemental round. They took second baseman Luke Keyshaw out of Arizona State in the second. High school outfitter Brandon Winokur in the third round. Then they took Southern Mississippi right-hander Tanner Hall in the fourth and Wisconsin high school right-hander Dylan Kestad in the fifth round. So, Probably like all the teams picking in the top five, you feel pretty good about their first round pick. They had a lot of high, high upside high schoolers even after Walker Jenkins. I thought that was kind of the theme of this class for the Twins, which is exciting. It's always fun for me to see teams really heavily invest in the high school demographic. But what are your initial takeaways of this draft class, Peter? Yeah, I mean, like you said, when you're picking inside the top five, it's going to be difficult, at least initially, to not feel really good about whoever is selected. And I think that Walker Jenkins, I mean, getting him fifth overall, I think you can you can view that, at least in my mind, and I know that you're a huge Walker Jenkins guy as well. I think you can kind of view that as a steal. Um, I, I think yeah. he's worth, and he's worth the little over $7 million they gave him. Um, great body, can hit for power, he can run well, got a really good throwing arm. 6-3-2-10 looks the part, and the early results have been really good. So I kind of like going with two high-end high school guys with their first two overall picks. And then with Soto at 34, you've got the premium fastball. And, I mean, he's a he's a huge kid. The upside is 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 really, really big with Soto. And then I Keishel, at least throughout the college season for me, um, he emerged as one of my more underrated favorite college bats. Really good feel for the barrel. Could hit for both uh, power and average. He's going to stick somewhere on the dirt, likely at second base. Um, I liked his actions over there. So first yeah, three Keishel, really good picks. You brought up Keishel. I want to touch on him really quickly because we are just looking at some exit velocity data from the 2023 class um, and how that's translating to pro ball for a little study we're going to do there and just like what is the drop-off in exit velocity on average for these college players going into their first year of pro ball. Keishel is actually one of the players that jumped out. His, his exit velocity is – are up in pro ball, which isn't super intuitive. I know that exit velocity data in college was maybe one of the bigger question marks in his profile. We had pretty solid grades on him across the board outside of power. He's performing well statistically in pro ball so far, 25 games between rookie ball, low A, high A, uh, hitting almost 300 with a 439 OBP, 460 slug. But that, that exit velocity data point, I'm really intrigued to watch over the next few years, like how he sustains that if it improves. Um, because again, that's like the one area of his game where you kind of question, okay, how much impact is he going to have? Makes a lot of contact. Um, he did chase a little bit, um, but so far the OVP and Pro Bowl has been pretty good. But yeah, really, really interesting pick. And based on what he's done so far in Pro Bowl, I think it's only even more interesting. Yeah. And that's a, just real quick, that's a great point with the impact. And I think that where maybe the twins look to for that, obviously, but besides the exceptional year he had at Arizona state where, um, you know, we're 350 with 44 extra base hits. 
his K performance was really strong in, in Woodback performance. Uh, he had 267 with six doubles and five home runs. I mean, he hit for, I'd say when I saw him in 2022, at least a tick above average raw power. And I think that they were maybe more reassured on the impact, um, not dropping off after seeing his Woodback track record. So, Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, really good bat to ball skills does chase a little bit, but, um, he hammers really anything in the strike zone. So good early results so far with Luke. Yeah. A few pitchers they took, I mean, really all of their first three pitchers, I really like quite a bit. I don't know if they like classify as personal cheese ball status. Cause a few of these guys are pretty prominent. Maybe Dylan Kestad was ranked low enough to, to classify, but the Twins have done a good job in, in recent history getting good value out of pitchers they've taken on day two and later. And, and on top of Soto, like he has explosive stuff. I love the athleticism. I think he's got a chance for two above average, maybe plus secondaries. Uh, if he can throw strikes a little bit more consistently, if the fastball shape doesn't prove to be too much of an issue. I know there were some teams that were kind of banging him on their draft boards as we approach the draft, just because the fastball shape is a little bit in that kind of dead zone range that you you don't love. Um, clearly the t- twins were happy to get him at the 34th pick, but both Tanner Hall and Dylan Kestad have really impressive foundations of control. Um, kind of those exact pitcher profiles I'd point to as like guys who you hope get into pro ball and add a little bit more velocity. Uh, although I think I have fewer questions about Kestad throwing hard than I maybe do Tanner Hall because that's been up to 96 in the past. Um, but he was maybe one of the most impressive strike throwers for me on the high school circuit. And then Tanner Hall, I feel like he'd really developed a reputation as a, a fantastic strike thrower and had one of the more consistent changeups in the class as well. So we have 60s on both the control and the change for him. So I, I really like this trio of arms they have early in this draft after taking some really toolsy high school players in front of them with Jenkins, Soto, and then Brandon Winokur, who we haven't mentioned, but who has just massive power and arm strength. It was a fun pick as well. Yeah, they're, they're a trio of guys, and you touched on the first one a little bit that I really liked with the Twins. Um, I In the fourth round, or like, Tanner Hall is obviously mm-hmm. the first one. The, the control and command is, I'd say, are each a 70. The sinker-slider combo is really effective, and he's got feel for a, a plus changeup, I'd say, at this point, a slider also flashing plus. I think that's a a relatively safe and high floor pick. I think that's someone you can bet on moving relatively expeditiously through your system. Mm. Um, I think that the ceiling might be, you know, a fourth starter, but I think that someone who can eat innings for you. And um, I think he projects well at the next level. And then another one on the arm side in the 11th round is Ty Langenberg from Iowa Um, Mm. was solid at Iowa in his first, um, or excuse me, this spring, 86 Ks and 78 innings. Um, again, though, was really impressed when I got a look at him last summer, and he was actually excellent in relief, 33 Ks to four walks with um, over the course of 21 innings, Colin Carr with Langenberg. Again, doesn't have the thunderous velocity as someone like Charlie Soto does, but he'll pitch 90-93, touch a four and a five, um, showed feel for a plus changeup, and the slider's also been effective. So that's someone... Um, really interesting to get your hands on whether he ends up in the bullpen at the next level or sticks in the starting rotation. I think he might be best out of the bullpen, mm. um, but we'll see. And then someone else in the sixth round was Jay Harry at a Penn state um, was solid for the Nittany Lions this year um, had a good pre-draft stint 
um, on the Cape. And then so far, again, the early results with him have been, have been really good. The approach and bat to ball skills are both uh, really advanced. Uh, he's walked over the course of 22 games between the complex and Fort Myers. He's walked 12 times compared to just four strikeouts. Um, hitting the ball well, really, I'd say easy and low maintenance setup at the plate. Uh, good hands, feel for the barrel. And the compete level with Jay is off the charts. He kind of fits your northeast grinder mold to a T. Mm. He's just a baseball rat, doesn't care about anything but winning. And I think that um, that's someone you, those types of players you always like having around in your system. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that's notable, not necessarily on the player front, but just how, how Minnesota navigated the finances, they were the only team in this division who didn't spend more than their bonus pool. They were exactly at uh, 100%. They didn't go over or under by dollar. I think there are only three teams that exactly hit their total bonus pool. I am assuming that's why it took so long for Walker Jenkins to sign officially with the team. I would imagine Jenkins camp was trying to get as many dollars as they could to push the twins up to the 5% overage and they were not budging. So uh, that's just an assumption. I don't know that uh, for a fact by any means, but it is notable that they're one of three teams to just spend exactly their bonus pool. And then I think there were five other teams who spent under. So everyone else that we'll talk about today did go over the entirety of their bonus pool. If you look at the bonuses, they seem to play it fairly straight up. Um, no huge under slot over slot deals. Uh, that really jump out to me off the page. But any other players you want to mention before we move on to Cleveland, Peter? I mean, I, I think we touched on it well. A really deep sleeper, I'd say, in round 17 through 20 is is D2 lefty Cade Bragg from Angelo State. Mm-hmm. Was one of, if not the best, Division two arm, 1.2 ERA with 124 Ks and, 100, and 104 innings for Angelo State. Um Solid left-handed pick in the 17th. I think getting that kind of, I guess you could call it value that late um, is, I'd say that's a nice get um, with one of their last three picks in the draft. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to Cleveland. They are uh, second in the division at this point. I feel like Cleveland's drafts are always, like they have a very heavy Cleveland flavor, if that makes sense. And maybe that's simply because, they are consistently a very model heavy team. And so it makes sense that a lot of their players share uh, pretty similar attributes. The the thing that stood out this year, which again, most years they take players who understand the strike zone, make a lot of contact. I think every single player that was selected in the top 10 rounds for Cleveland this year in their scouting reports, we mentioned something to the effect of, uh, really strong understanding of the zone, good zone control, good play discipline, or uh, really impressive contact ability, um, doesn't swing and miss too often, or both of those attributes. Like between Ralphie Velasquez, and I guess I should run down their top five round players, uh, but they took Ralphie Velasquez in the first round on an underslot deal, uh, very Cleveland move. They took Alexander Clemmy in the second round, overslot deal, basically balancing out those two picks with the money they moved around. Um, they took Andrew Walters, a right-handed pitcher out of Miami in the second supplemental round. They took CJ Kafis, selected him as an outfielder out of Miami in the third round. Then they took Cooper Ingle, a catcher out of Clemson in the fourth. And their fifth round pick was Christian Natchik, a shortstop uh, from Louisville. So that's their top five rounds. Again, like as I'm reading, running down these names, all of these hitters just are so Cleveland to me. You go down beyond that tommy hawk alex mooney like they all fit this profile of like contact oriented hitters 
who don't have a ton of power, uh, again, outside of Velasquez, who I just think have pretty good impact. Um, but especially for the hitters, just very Cleveland MO here. What are your thoughts on this draft for, for the Guardians, Peter? So each draft year, I, I think that we're in a similar boat. I, I really pay close attention, obviously, to all the picks, but to who Cleveland takes, Houston, the Dodgers, kind of those data-centric model teams. I, mm. I'm really fascinated with how they draft. Um, Velasquez, I think, is one of the more advanced high school bats uh, that they could have got, especially at 23. And again, the early results have been really good. He, I mean, he flat out rakes. Uh, he hits for both average and power, has shown it so far. Um, I really like it. And then I, with Clemmy at 58, I mean, he's a really low floor, really, really high ceiling type of pick. Outstanding clay. 66205 moves reasonably well on the mound. You can add, I'd say, pretty easily 15 plus pounds. It's thunderous stuff. I mm. mean, he's been up to, he, he's been 96, 99 with the fastball plus breaking ball. Um, little relievery, but I, yeah. I would guess that he's going to get a chance to start or they're at least going to work with him to try to get him to start. And then I, I guess, was... worst case, you're looking at a high end reliever. Yeah, I was fascinated with this pick too because it almost feels like more Tampa Bay, more Dodgery, Dodgery kind of profile. Like those two teams seem to have, at least in the recent past, been willing to take these like high octane pitchers with some control issues and they feel like they can uh, kind of improve them in that area. I feel like I, in my mind, had more associated Cleveland with these command artists who they can add some stuff to. But clearly with Clemmy, you're going in that opposite direction where. The stuff is very obvious. You're hoping you can improve the control. As we approach the draft, I got a lot more scouts than I expected saying that like Alexander Clemmy and Thomas White were probably a lot closer um, than, than many people thought. And in terms of pure stuff, I think that's, that's a perfectly solid argument to make. I think you probably have a more consistently plus breaking ball with Clemmy than you do White, even though I think White's three-pitch mix uh, on the whole is probably a little bit better just thanks to that changeup. Um, but yeah, the control is a big question mark. So it'll be interesting to see how they do with that one. Uh, and I, I guess I'll let you get back to it. I kind of jumped in to follow up on the Clemmy pick, but that one's fascinating with Cleveland specifically. No, no worries. And I, that's a great point because Thomas White has been the name I'd say in high school baseball, really, since he was 14 years old. Um, he was throwing 90 with a clean delivery when he was like 14, um, but again, I, I think that they are way closer and it, there is a legit argument as to, you know, would you rather um, Clemmy or White? So I think getting him late in the second, um, you know, that's that's a good spot to get Alex Clemmy. And then looking down the board, a real college flavor, which I'm always, <laughs> which I'm always going to love, especially mm -hmm. uh, I think Andrew Walters going in the second was a little bit of a surprise. I think in that late second, maybe early third range is where you typically see the best reliever in the class go. Um, I think that was one when I was sitting watching the draft, I wasn't expecting Walters to go that early, but um, yeah. I'd I say think it's the, a um, For him, like it wouldn't be surprising if, if his like senior status was a factor there. He did sign for like 300 under slot. And I think on talent, he fits in this range. Plus, if you're Cleveland and you like to spread your money around, I think it makes a lot of sense for them. That's a good point. Cause you got him for 700,000 throws his fat. I mean, 70 fastball. He is the best reliever in the draft. You cut a deal on him. Um, and then you 
you know, you just kind of hope he carries over that performance. So I like that pick. Um, and then going down the board, another guy that I really like um, starting this year, um, especially was Tommy Hawk from Wake Forest. Yeah. Uh, just infectious energy watching him play. Um, he's, he's just an absolute dirt dog to a T three fifty. at three fifty this spring, 19 doubles, seven home runs, um, more of a slash and dash guy, I think at the next level, um, below average power. But as you mentioned, the zone control and feel the hit, um, 51 Ks to 51 walks at school. Um, not a whole lot of swing and miss in Hawks game plays it really fast, pushes the pace on opposing pitchers a guy that's going to consistently move the baseball. And I think professionally will have a knack for taking an extra base on a ball down the line or a ball in a gap and then sneak one over the fence every now and again. And defensively played center every day for wake. Um, they've used him both in center and in left so far at the complex. I wouldn't be shocked if maybe long-term they try him or he ends up at second base um, played there. I think a couple of games as a true freshman at wake, Um, but he was fine there. He's got good feet, good actions. I think that the arm obviously would play there. Um, quick twitch kind of guy. If he's not playing center field, I think second would be interesting to explore because you'd really have to be optimistic about the power coming to feel confident in his bat profiling in a corner. I think it's obviously the biggest red flag with his profile is, is just that power. Um, it's not a big guy, never really hit the ball super hard you probably can't project too much on that in the future so hopefully he sticks up the middle in some capacity um i'm kind of surprised he's played as much left field as he has uh although i guess it's like five games total that he's played so far (laughs) yeah no and he's i mean he's a plus runner too i think that the speed plays in the outfield the only question is going to be the arm and i think that Mm. you know as he keeps progressing um especially if they use him in the outfield he is going to be just i'd say strictly a left fielder um but I think a, a, another one, not to maybe steal your thunder here, another very Guardians pick that I was excited about was Jay Driver from Harvard um, yeah. in the ninth. And no pun intended here. It's kind of a, your classic drop and drive delivery, sinker slider guy. Um, started at Harvard, started for the majority of his college career. Um, I mean, the, the, both the sinker and the slider, I'd say, are plus pitches. Um, and I think that long-term he's going to end up in the bullpen as a, I'd say a high leverage reliever where he'd be really, really effective. And I guess early on, that's, I guess, proven my point a little bit, uh, has made mm-hmm. six appearances between the complex and low a, all six have been out of the bullpen. Um, I think the one issue for him in the past has been the command. He does spray it a little bit. He's walked five and three and two thirds, but again, super early on, you can't really take much from I'd say he's thrown six innings you can't really take much of that but um, Mm -hmm. again early returns have shown you know they've been good for Jay and then I'd say a sleeper guy in the 10th or I think that's where they got him maybe it was the 11th but Matt Wilkinson from from Central Arizona they call him his nickname was Tudboat which I I love he's (laughs) sick that's phenomenal he's 6'1 270 um, really fascinating build Fascinating big... seems to be a nice word for that one, there, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say pretty, pretty physical. Uh, no, but an interesting build with Wilkinson hides the ball really, really well. Mm. Commands the name of the game with him. Fastball gets on hitters. It's, it has kind of invisible traits. 
Um, and I think, again, it's fourth or fifth starter, but someone who's going to be really effective professionally, um, especially against Wood. So another very fascinating Guardians draft. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the players you mentioned, you broke down exceptionally well. Uh, a few things I wanted to, to note, um, just selecting CJ Kafis as an outfielder, I was curious about because I mean, one of the biggest questions with Kafis, he had similar profile questions as a first baseman um, as Trey Morgan did, just good first base types who are hit over power players. Uh, and you kind of wonder, like, is he ever going to hit for enough power to profile as a first baseman? So far in pro ball, it's been eight games at first, four games in left field for Kafis. But I was always pretty impressed with his approach. Again, it's not the most physical player or, or a body that you can dream on to add a ton of power in the future. But always showed pretty good understanding for the zone. Um, lots of contact. Sprays the ball into both gaps. So the fact that they picked him as an outfielder and he's played some outfield, I think is intriguing. Um, you go further down, Alex Mooney was the big pick for them in terms of an overslot signing in the seventh round. Once we'd gone through the first five rounds, it was a little bit surprising to not see Alex Mooney off the board. Uh, and then when Cleveland popped him, I, I thought it made all the sense in the world. He seems, again, like a lot of these players, line drive, contact hitter, sticks up the middle at a position probably somewhere. If it's not shortstop, I think he's got a chance to play second. Um, maybe he's that super utility type. He is athletic. Uh, pretty good instincts for the game. So he was their big kind of overslot signing that a lot of the money that that Clemmy didn't get in the second round, uh, they got he got the money there. Then for day three, one one pitcher that I'm really intrigued by is Jacob Bresnahan, the left-handed pitcher um, that they got in the 13th round. I didn't really hear about him until late in the process. He really wasn't on the national showcase circuit in 2022 all that often, but his name started kind of popping up. And he sounds like a very polished strike-throwing pitcher that you're kind of projecting on the stuff to come. It's 87-92 fastball, curveball that needs some work, solid changeup. But what jumped out to me when I was just talking to scouts about him was his feel for strike-throwing, his ability to pound the zone with all three of those pitches. And then he's also pretty young for the class. He didn't turn 18 until just a few days before the draft. So all those traits really make sense for Cleveland players they've liked in the past. I'm curious to see how the stuff will evolve for him over the next few years. Um, and then I guess another pitcher that I really liked Cleveland taking was Ryan Marone in the 20th. They did not sound uh, sign him, uh, but he has a lot of similar traits uh, as I was just talking about with Bresnahan. Like not the most premium stuff, upper 80s, low 90s. I actually got to see him live um, this spring. He's very close to where I'm I'm living here in Northern Virginia. Uh, but great feel for for pitching, repeats well. Good fastball, good feel for the breaking ball, really good feel for his changeup. I think he'll be a really fun player to watch in college. And if he had some velocity, I think he'll be a lot more prominent in a few years. Yeah, no, I, I and I think that there are another few sleepers that they may have grabbed on day three, maybe not in terms of ceiling, but mm. I'd say rather safe picks. Matt Jacek from Indiana State is another one that got him in the 18th. For, I believe it was just 50,000, which I think yep. for him is great value. It's at most fifth starter upside. Um, no real physical projection left, but he, I mean, he really knows how to pitch. And other guys, as we've talked about at length, is going to really pound the strike zone and um, give you kind of advanced polish at this stage. So I like that pick a little bit. And then kind of going, scanning this draft board a little more. Um, I mean, 
Christian Napchik in the fifth and England, England and Napchik going back to back in the fourth and fifth, respectively. Two guys who are going to really move the baseball. Um, great field to hit. Um, and watching both Ingle and Napchik play, um, they play the game really, really hard. And I think that they're two incredibly tough outs, um, whether they end up in Lynchburg together. And I'm sure that they'll be they'll be reunited at some point. But looking at a potential lineup, at least in some affiliate that's going to include at least, <laughs> I'd say, Kafis, Ingle, Napchik, Hawk, and Mooney, um, that's a pretty yeah. formidable five. So. Might be tough uh, for some of those pitchers see. who are learning to throw some strikes a little bit more consistently. They're they're not going to give themselves up very often. <laughs> exactly. So intriguing as always. I'm sure that they're going to turn a few of these guys who um, maybe seem a bit more modest on paper into monsters. So excited mm-hmm. to watch really all of these guys progress. Yeah, and, and just to retouch on Ralphie Velasquez up top, like he's the one really impactful hitter in this class where you can feel confident about the power of production. It was only six games in rookie ball so far, but to your point that you made earlier, it was really loud for six games. He had 348, 393, 739, two home runs, three doubles. Um, I, I've consistently kind of compared him to Tyler Soderstrom at the same time, just in terms of like hit power high school catcher who – Probably doesn't stick at catcher. Or at least there are a lot of questions about him sticking at the position. But even if he has to move off and play first, um, you feel pretty confident about that hit power combination. So um, a fun draft class for Cleveland here. Any other thoughts before we move on to Detroit next? No, I, th- I think we touched on it pretty well. All right. Um, let's keep it rolling then. So Detroit, um, the other team in this division who's picking inside the top five, they took the other high school player, who we had in the elite top tier group of, of prospects at number three with Max Clark, making him the first high school player off the board in the supplemental first round. They selected uh, Pennsylvania shortstop, Kevin McGonigal out of high school. In the second round, they took Nebraska second baseman, Max Anderson. In the third round, they took left-handed pitcher, Paul Wilson, another high school selection. In the fourth round, they took Tennessee third baseman, Carson Rucker, again, uh, high school, Tennessee, not the university. And in the fifth round, they took Middle Tennessee State right-hander Jaden Ham. So that's how their draft uh, unfolded in the top five rounds. I like to call this one the Ben Badler draft because uh, <laughs> he was massively high on Max Clark, even though everyone in the industry was high on Max Clark. Ben seemed to be even higher. And then Kevin McGonigal has long been one of his favorite hitters in the class. I think, I think Ben would have taken him maybe – 20 spots higher than the Tigers took Kevin McGonigal. So for them to get two of the most elite hitting prospects in the high school class, lefty bats, up the middle profiles, I think is a pretty loud start to this class. Um, And then you've got a number of intriguing prospects down the board that we can look at as well. But I, I think it was interesting to see this so high school heavy. It was always going to be interesting to see how the Tigers would draft under this new leadership group, Mark Connor. Uh, scouting director with Detroit after spending some time with San Diego. Maybe it's not all that surprising that it was high school heavy, given what he had done in the past with San Diego. Um, But yeah, what are your thoughts on Detroit's class? Yeah. I mean, they made as, I'd say as big a splash as anyone in terms of notoriety um, with their first two picks, it's hard to, to, to beat them in notoriety with the, with Matt Clark. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, you started off, it's a chance to start for him to, to stick up the middle and center um, it's five tool upside with Clark makeup in between the lines, I think is exceptional plays the game really hard, uh, whether it's for his high school, Franklin or at the complex, or as you, 
even get into some of these lower levels. Um, he plays it at one speed and, and he plays to win, which I think is, in a re- is a really appealing quality. And then you talk about the tools themselves. Um, I mean, he's, he's, he's tooled up the yin yang. So yeah, maybe um, the tools he's got a player ch- in the entire class. <laughs> he's got a chance to be as high an impact player um, in this entire draft class. And then I think I might join Ben in that Kevin McGonigal personal cheese ball category. You mentioned that in between the lines makeup. McGonagall is really, really similar to Clark in that regard. He's a natural born leader. He plays to win, plays the game incredibly hard. And then the hit tool, I think, I mean, you can put that up against any high school bat in the class, at least in my mind, he is, he's an auto barrel. Um, he hits everything hard. He hits it to all fields. Um, I'd say he's going to be a little bit of a hit over power guy, but I think it's 15 to 20 home run upside, um, especially where the game's headed in the, Again, early returns, five games in Lakeland. He's hitting really well. Um, not overwhelmed at all with affiliate pitching. So I think that mm. those two high school guys, um, I mean, they're clearly betting on them pretty heavily to, you know, be arguably the future faces of the Detroit Tigers. So um, yeah. I think if there are two guys who can um, maybe live up to that billing, it's Clark and McGonagall. I'm really, really um, – a little bit similar to Ben. I'm really, really excited about McGonagall. I think getting him at 37 is a steal. Um, personally, just from what I've seen with the intangibles combined with the tools and, and track record of performance at the highest level that he can be at in high school, mm-hmm. um, I probably would have taken McGonagall in in the top 25 overall picks rather easily. So yeah. he's someone that I'm I'm excited about. Absolutely. He's fun to watch. I mean, he's probably one of the most impressive performers of the 2023 high school players that I saw in person. It just seemed like he was on the barrel consistently every game, like the approach. I think it's aggressive without chasing out of the zone too often. And I really appreciate that. He goes up to the plate looking to hit, but but has an approach, has an understanding of what he's trying to do. I also think it's worth noting just how the Tigers went about securing these players. They did um, get Max Clark on a, an underslot deal. He signed for 640000 underslot in order to sign Kevin McGonigal to 538,000 over slot at pick 37. So McGonigal is still getting back of the first round money, which I think exactly fits on talent for him. They also continue to kind of balance things out with their next few picks. Max Anderson came on almost $500,000 under slot. Then they went over slot for both Paul Wilson and Carson Rucker Uh, went slightly under for a few of the college players they took after that. And then on day three, they were one of the more aggressive teams in terms of handing out, bigger bonuses. I think they're probably a top four team just in terms of significant bonuses on the third day that, that go beyond that 150 cap. Um, so just kind of looking at, at how they actually put the pieces together here uh, was fun. I think Paul Wilson in the third round was a pretty good pick on talent. I think there is some reliever risk with Wilson, but I also really like just the physicality, the fastball, the slider combination um, he's thrown two breaking balls in the past. I'm curious to see if, if he'll continue to throw two in the future. Most of the scouts we talked to seem to think the slider uh, had quite a bit more potential than the curveball. But um, just the improvement he made with his control, the delivery on the mound this spring, I think was encouraging. He's probably going to have to keep taking strides in that department just to maximize what he's able to do with really loud, pure stuff from the left side. So that one was interesting to me. Carson Rucker is also another player who's pretty interesting to me, very physical. Again, not a player who was on the the showcase circuit 
significantly in high school. Um, but the swing is really impressive. He can drive the ball with authority. It's long levers. He creates leverage. There's room for more strength and power. Um, he's turned in plus run times. I think maybe just given his size, as he adds strength, he'll probably back up a little bit, but I think has a chance to stick at third base and be a good defender there with solid actions, chance for a really good arm. Um, so pretty toolsy player who, again, maybe I'd have more conviction in the overall hit tool if I had just seen him more, if I had more of more track record of him hitting against impressive competition, but just watching him, seeing the frame, seeing the tools, it's a really exciting player to dream on. And I think that that profile packaged with very polished hit tools of Clark and McGonagall up top, um, I think you can take a little risk on a guy who has some really exciting upside. Again, it's a fourth round pick, um, a decent amount of money with it, but he, he's a fun one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the guy that you mentioned earlier who I was particularly excited about was Paul Wilson. I know mm. leading up to the draft, he was a guy that had pretty significant buzz up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I think that they were able to secure him, a really high upside guy with with big time stuff. I think that's a good pick in and of itself. And then scanning down their board a little further, John Peck in the seventh is an interesting one, getting him for 220000 um, good bet to ball skills, especially with the fastball. He really doesn't get cheated by, fat, by, by heaters. Um, I think it's an 89%, um, overall contact rate against the pitch. Um, 91% overall, um, in zone contact rate. He's a good athlete, good bat speed. Um, had a little bit of a, a quieter year at Pepperdine that, that I think hindered his stock a little bit. I know coming into this year, um, he was a guy that was talked about as a day one sleeper or top three round type, but um, more of a modest year for the waves. Um, but uh, he's, he's an interesting pick. And then also Jaden Ham for middle Tennessee state college performer um, early results have been really good. And I think again, going into, I'd say deeper into day three, trying to find that potential big time sleeper and guy that they might've hit on late. Um, Donye Evans fits the mold for me, um, mm. right-hander from Charlotte, uh, started his college career at Vanderbilt, six, six to 20, um, performed well for the 49ers this year was mainly used out of the bullpen. Interestingly enough, he was really good as a starter for Orleans on the Cape a couple summers ago. Um, but they used him out of the bullpen in a, in a reliever role where he was effective 64 Ks in 46 innings, um, walks were a little high at 28 and 46 innings, but, um, interesting sinker slider, fastball slider combination, slider slash plus fastball has been up to 96. Um, again, pro ready body at six, six. I think if you can refine the command, which, I mean, that's the theme for so many of these arms taken in general. Um, you know, if you can shore up the command and boost the pitch ability, I think he's got a chance to be really effective. And, and that's a, I think they signed him for 150. I think that's a, that's yep, a solid pick that late. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. Another one that I'll name just as a, a late sleeper to keep an eye on is Jonathan Rogers uh, getting a high school signed on day three for 150 is always pretty impressive. A lot of those guys would just rather go to college at that point, but projection right-hander pretty impressive pitchers frame. There's a lot of arm talent, arm speed. think he can probably throw harder in the future um, during his high school career. It was mostly or his high school senior season. I should say it was mostly like 89, 91, been up to 92, 93. I think there are some issues with just syncing up the lower, lower half with the upper half, the release point, the overall control can be a little bit scattered at times. Um, 
he'll need to improve the secondaries as well. But just in terms of like arm talent, physicality, um, a lot to like there for a guy that you got with the 590th pick of the draft. And I'm, I'm also kind of intrigued with their two expensive signings on day three, Andrew Dunford out of Houston County High School in Georgia, right-handed pitcher, and then Brady Sirkonowick, uh, a catcher out of Connors State. Both those guys signed for 350, 400,000 on day three. I don't know a ton about them, but just the price tags there uh, makes me kind of intrigued to see what what Detroit saw in them and how they performed. So there'll be two names that I'm I'm watching uh, over the next few months and and years to see how they pan out because those are two guys that, that got some money that I don't have a ton of info on at this point. Uh, so that's Detroit. Anything else on Detroit, Peter? Should we move on to Chicago? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm ready to move on to the White Sox. They, uh, <laughs> a draft class that that I'm, a, would say, an underrated fan of. Okay, interesting. So I'll, I'll run through it really quickly, and then I'll let you kind of explain why you like it. Um, first round with a 15th pick, they took Jacob Gonzalez, shortstop out of Old Miss. In the second round, they took right-handed pitcher Grant Taylor out of Louisiana State. In the third round, they took uh, Wake Forest right-hander Seth Keener. In the fourth round, they took Ole Miss catcher Calvin Harris. And then in the fifth round, they took Gulf Coast Junior College left-hand pitcher Christian Oper. And my assumption, Peter, here is that uh, you're a fan of these college-heavy drafts, and the White <laughs> Sox bucked, bucked the trend from last year when they went with a high school pitcher in the first round, went back to their college roots. Uh, I think they signed a single high school player in this entire draft class. So my assumption is going to be you like this college heavy flavor for Chicago. <laughs> exactly. I 19, or I, I believe all but one of their signees um, are college guys at the top. Um, I, I know Jacob Gonzalez again, coming into this year, there was, I'd say, I don't say, I don't, I don't want to say one, one chatter because I think that was uh, Dylan Cruz's spot really until I'd say the last month leading up to the draft, month and a half. But, I mean, there was top five chatter around Gonzalez um, as we got into the draft cycle. Um, the bloodlines are obvious, college performer, um, good left-handed swing. It's an interesting operation at the plate. Um, I can't say that I'm the, the biggest fan of it, um, and I kind of wonder either. how it – and I kind of wonder how it works. Um, sometimes it, it looks almost out of sync, but – um, performed well at, at, at Ole Miss for three years, um, held down shortstop where I think is the position at which he'll stick um, in a sound approach. I just wonder a little bit um, about the bat long-term. I think that's that's just my main concern with Gonzalez. I'm curious your thoughts though. Yeah, no, I share similar concerns. Um, you mentioned the operation. I've talked about this in a number of podcasts that we've done recently and, and kind of leading up to the draft. It's, it's just a very odd setup. It's an open lower half. It's like a tucked in upper half with the shoulder. He's stepping out and pulling a lot, um, regardless of where the ball's pitched. It's a pull heavy approach um, based on just the spray chart in college. He, he kind of turned on a lot of, I would say, less than pro uh, quality secondary pitches and outer third fastballs. And I'm just kind of wondering how pro pitchers are going to attack him on the outer third. Cause I imagine that's where they'll start to try to attack him at least early on. I mean, to your point about his production in college, he's always been really impressive in terms of average, in terms of on base ability, in terms of in zone contact, uh, power production in college. Like, like he has been a very impressive performer and the approach has worked for him. And, and I do tend to think that 
you can get get it done in a lot of different ways sometimes that look odd um but i kind of want to be convinced of that and pro ball i think he did answer a lot of questions about his defensive ability at shortstop the fact that he played shortstop every day from day one at mississippi was a two-time college national team starting shortstop probably helped answer a lot of those questions he doesn't have typical shortstop range but i think he he's a very reliable defender makes all the plays he can get to um so i am curious to see like how the body will develop he's not a great runner uh, which would be maybe my biggest question with shortstop like as he progresses and the game speeds up like is he going to move over to third? I think that I think there's a chance that he plays third base, but you probably keep him at shortstop as as long as he can play there. Um, there have been some big guys who maybe don't have the typical range that you associate with middle infield that that have played fine defense there. But yeah, an interesting one. I think I like the pick because it was at 15, and they also signed him to a deal almost six hundred thousand dollars under slot, which both the draft capital and the bonus needed to acquire him there. I think is pretty exceptional value when you factor in the handedness, the college production, SEC production and profile and just tool set, like all of that, you add it all together for that pick and that signing bonus. And I think it's great value, even if Jacob Gonzalez like does some things that I don't particularly love. No, I, I totally agree. And I think the value for that pick, especially with, um, you know, all the chatter Gonzalez had coming into the year, um, I don't know if you can necessarily call it a steal, but I think getting him where they got him, um, I'm sure that they're really happy to see him still on the board. So um, it, an interesting way to start off the draft. And then in the second round, I know that there was some questions as to whether or not he'd maybe go back to LSU, um, but they went and got Grant Taylor, who mm-hmm. missed all of the 2023 season rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. He won't pitch until at least I'd say the middle of next spring, but I mean, he was the best arm that I saw in the Cape League last summer. It was a riding fastball, 93 to 96. Had plenty of life through the strike zone, plus breaking ball, starter pitch mix. I think that it's, I mean, it's it's big time upside with Taylor, not in terms of, mm. you know, him not being a finished product, but I think that it might be front end of the rotation type upside with an arm like that. And then... Yeah, I think that pick was it's fascinating because we talked so much about how there was this drop off in second tier college arms. And I don't know that I had given a ton of thought to teams just taking a gamble on some of these really talented pitchers that were shelved this year because of injury. And I think Grant Taylor certainly qualifies like if he was healthy, he had a chance to move himself into first round consideration for sure. Um, so I think it's an interesting way to navigate the the college pitching ranks in a year where you maybe aren't thrilled with the healthy college pitchers who are available outside of the first round. So on talent, I really like it. It comes with some risk for sure. Um, but there's a lot to like here. It's high spin secondary stuff. The the curveball in the past has looked good. He's been up to 99. Um, so if he comes back and he's healthy, this would be a fun one to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in a similar stroke where you maybe are, at least initially, it looks like you're reaching for some of these guys, getting Seth Keener in the third round. I know that mm-hmm. after the season that he had on a loaded weight pitching staff, he had really established himself I I thought as a top you know five to seven round pick um I didn't expect to see him in the third but they I mean they went and got their guy he was really good at Wake Forest um relied heavily on his flyer but it was really an effective pitch he threw it 42 percent of the time at a 46 percent miss rate on it 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 looked plus to me at least when I saw him pitch in Omaha it was a a really really effective secondary offering 
Um, and then his fastball, which he honestly doesn't throw that often this spring, he was 92 to 95 touching a six and seven with it. And then he also had an effective changeup. So um, interesting arsenal and a pick that I'm a fan of. And I know that at least I saw, I think a couple of weeks ago is, first few appearances at the complex were, were really, really effective. So um, I like the Keener pick and then looking down further on this board, Lucas Gordon, a polished college arm really knows how to pitch. Um, Calvin Harris. I, I really like how he plays. And then also you get a rather offensive minded catcher who I think, I mean, he was, he only spent one year as, Ole Miss's everyday catcher. So I think the catching is only going to get better with continued reps and experience behind the plate. And he, I mean, he really, really hit for two of his three years at, at Ole Miss and so far is, is hitting well in affiliate baseball. Yeah. Well, let, let me jump into the one high school player of this draft class here and George Wolkow in the seventh round. He is a fascinating prospect in his own right. I think it's it's funny to kind of see this be the only high school player uh, that a team takes in a class filled with a, a ton of college players. He was originally a member of the 2024 class, reclassified. Um, I think we had him as a top 10 prospect in the 2024 class before he reclassified. Um, but he doesn't at all look like a player who's young for the class. He's a massive frame, six foot seven right now looks like a big leaguer and has the raw power of a big leaguer. I mean, it's easy double plus raw. It wouldn't be surprising for him to reach 80 grade raw power in the future. What he showed at the draft combine was just kind of silly to see a high school player who he doesn't turn 18 until next January. So he's still 17 years old and he was putting up like 116 mile per hour exit velocities with wood which is just ridiculous. So there's clearly massive upside here. Um, he's got a chance to be a solid defender in a corner outfield spot. He's got plus arm strength. He's played third base in the past. He was selected as an outfielder. I think outfield is probably the most likely spot for him. Uh, I mean, maybe he could play first base in the future if that doesn't happen, but he has the power to profile really wherever he is on, on the diamond. I think there's just a lot of risk in the profile given the swing and miss. It's it's long levers. The swing can get a little bit loopy at times. He showed a lot of swing and miss last summer. And again, maybe maybe that's less of a concern because he is super young. He's playing competition much older than him. But but that's going to be the concern of him moving forward. High risk, high reward pick here. But for a million dollars to get access to this sort of raw power and talent, I don't think it's like a terrible signing like that, that cost for this sort of raw power and this, this body and projection, I think is, is a great, a great pick here. And this is where most of their underslot uh, or, or most of their signings went to, he signed for $750,000 over slot in the seventh round. And I think again, when his name came up on draft day on the second day, it was kind of one of those names that you turn and you're like, oh, like George Wolkow is going. I, I assumed he was going to get to college at this point. But uh, they had enough money to get him out of his, I think it was a South Carolina commit. So, Yeah, and, and you're more well-versed in on Wolkow than I am. But I, I know when I saw him get picked and obviously when I saw that they were able to sign him, I mean, in the seventh round, and if that's someone I knew I could lock up for a million dollars, that type of upside mm. um, in – really just the, I mean, 
the the type of upside i i do that in a heartbeat i know it's a relatively low floor with the swing and miss you mentioned the the long levers create some trouble at times but i i remember watching it was actually the the one rain delay in omaha when i tuned in the draft combine live stream and i saw this kid popping 116s <laughs> and i was like holy cow i mean you know and, and you look yeah. at the frame too it's it's elite it's a rather lean six seven like there isn't it's a pretty elite like, body it's a great looking body um and it's a good arm and i again i mean getting that for a million in the seventh and just getting him in your system i think that's a great play and then mm-hmm. kind of going a little further down the board um we talked about him a little at the top but maybe my my most fun player to watch in college baseball um i was so excited when i just saw him go off the board in general mm-hmm. um but in the 11th round they took riku nishida yeah, Morgan, that's a, a great one. <laughs> five, six hundred and fifty pound second base right fielder. Um, won't spend too much time talking on him, but he's a plus runner. I'd say an above average glove, borderline plus at second base, where he's got range in either direction. Um, approaches advanced at the plate with, I mean, he can really, really handle the bat, and he only and exclusively swung wood. Um, even at Oregon, I know he spent a little time using metal. Um, but he almost exclusively swung wood between his summer on the West Coast League and his summer on the Cape and then also at Oregon. I mean, I fell in love with him on the Cape. Um, just a super fun player to watch, infectious energy, um, and, and really good ability too. I uh, mentioned it. Uh, great bat-to-ball skills, someone who will consistently move the baseball and put it in play. And I think that you know, so, an underrated quality, and it's an intangible one, I mean, he'll really be able to – to bring a ton of energy to whatever dugout he's in. And so I think that combined with his ability as someone, you know, mm. you, you can feel really excited and confident about getting in your system. Yeah. I think, I think Riku is just like the definition of a player who's super easy to root for. He has a, a massively uphill battle. There are just very few players that have had successful big league careers at his size, five foot six, 150 pounds, like, just looking for players that that kind of qualify that height and weight you don't find many so I think everyone will probably be pulling for him because you love to see players that just buck the buck the trend and have these outlier traits that make it um and to your point he is really fun to watch in general uh one other name that I'll mention here on day three is uh, Matthias Lacombe a right-handed pitcher who the White Sox signed I think it was their biggest day three signing uh signed for four hundred fifty thousand dollars in the 12th round he was at uh, a junior college that, that had a ton of international prospects, actually. Lacombe is French native, and he popped up, I don't, I don't know how late in the spring, I can't recall exactly when his name started coming up, but he was sitting in the low 90s, but would touch 97 with his fastball and shorter outings, had a slower breaking ball in the upper 70s, flashed a low 80s change up, uh, although he mostly worked with that fastball breaking ball, but he had a really strong year at the junior college level, it was 1.74 ERA over 67 innings. 97 punch outs, 14 walks with a good frame as well. 6'2", 185 pounds. Uh, probably can add a little bit more strength, learn to use the lower half a little bit more consistently, maybe push the average velocity closer up uh, to that mid-90s range in the future. So they clearly like the arm talent, given the amount of money uh, they pushed his way in the draft. And just the fact that he's their most prominent day three signing, I figured I'd mention him. Um, but yeah, they signed every single player in their draft class, I believe. Um, it's obviously more common now in 20 rounds, but, um, 
notable that they did that. Any last thoughts on the White Sox, Peter? Yeah, one, I think we talked about it in our first draft podcast, but I think when you can go 20 for 20 and sign the entirety of your class, I think that's something to, to feel good about in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you can come away feeling pretty positive about it. Um, and then a, another guy who piqued my interest on day three when I dug in a little bit was Anthony Imoff, a six foot eight, 190 pound left-handed pitcher from <laughs> Pima Community College. Um, pretty good arm talent. Again, you get a six, eight lefty with projection. Um, there's obviously some stuff to clean up in there, but I think that again, just getting to work with someone like that and getting him in a, a, a professional player development system. Um, I think that there are obvious benefits to that. So, hmm. um, another pick that I was intrigued by rather late. Yeah. Layer on some weight with him. He did strike out 108 batters. I think that was good for like 11th uh, among D1 Juco pitchers. So very, very fun one there. A lot of, a lot of outlier body types in this Chicago draft as we kind of work through it. So that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to Kansas city. Uh, so the final team in the division here, uh, the Royals were picking eighth overall in the first round. They took Blake Mitchell, uh, high school catcher, the top ranked high school, or the top, yeah, the top ranked high school catcher on our board. In the second round, they took another high school player, right-hander Blake Walters. In the second supplemental round, they took Louisiana Lafayette outfielder Carson Roccaforte. In the third round, they took high school right-handed pitcher Hero Wyatt out of Connecticut. In the fourth round, they took Vanderbilt left-handed pitcher Hunter Owen. And in the fifth round, they selected Missouri State outfielder Spencer Nivens. So I feel like the Kansas City draft has been a little bit polarizing inside the BA office from some of the pro guys that I've talked to. uh, Because it sounds like there's just a lot of skepticism for the high school catcher demographic. And I guess when you're taking that high school catcher inside the top 10 picks, a lot of people get get scared off, but I, I kind of classified this draft class as no risk, no reward for the Royals. I thought they took a lot of uh, demographics that are perceived as risky. They invested over a million dollars in two high school right-handed pitchers and almost $5 million in a high school catcher. There are a lot of organizations that just want nothing to do with either of those demographics, especially with, with that sort of money. So I do kind of credit the Royals for for not being risk averse and taking players they like, although you have to function in the fact that Blake Mitchell was selected on a $1 million underslot deal. So it's similar to their draft a few years ago when they took Frankie Mazzucato inside the top 10, um, maybe a more surprising pick at the time than Blake Mitchell was. I think it was a pretty open secret that Mitchell was one of the players that the Royals were targeting on an underslot deal here at the eighth overall pick. But I really am just fascinated with Blake, just given his tool set, his power, his left-handed impact at the plate, his arm strength. I think he's got a chance to be not just stick a catcher, but be a good defensive catcher. So I think I'm one of the highest people in the BA office on Blake Mitchell specifically. And while he is off to a bit of a slow start in pro ball, I don't, I don't hate this pick like other people in our office. I, I kind of like it quite a bit because if you hit on this player, that's a ton of impact you're getting at a premium position. So I, I'm intrigued with it. But what are your thoughts overall on Kansas City's draft class year? 
Yeah, I, I think starting with Mitchell, I mean, you hit on it a little bit. It's a double plus arm behind the dish. He's a good athlete. I'd say above average um, raw power. And then the hit tool is is going to continue to progress or at least hopefully continue to progress. I do like Rockefort, um, their third pick. Um, mm-hmm. He was a he was really good at Lafayette or at Louisiana um, this spring. Hit 318 with 26 doubles um and eight home runs he's a good defender in center field um really good athlete good approach um i think that uh he was in a he turned in plus run times i think you can comfortably say he's an above average runner um it's an outstanding batted ball profile and the early results have been excellent um he's hitting 361 across the complex and low a with six doubles and two triples and i think um what what stood out most when watching Rockefeller play, it's a really loose and easy left-handed swing that he's able to generate serious impact with. And he's a good-looking athlete. He's 10 for 11 in stolen bases in low A. I know it's it's still really early, but I think that's someone that they may have they may have hit on. Um, I think that he's a he's a future big leaguer, and um, he's got a chance to be an impact one at that. And then another guy that that I liked at at and with their fourth pick um, is Hero Wyatt at Staples High School in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I know that in the spring, he kind of went from someone who was almost a slam dunk to go to school where he was committed to Southern California um, to someone who had serious, serious helium come draft time. And it shows with him going really early on day two. It's kind of a, a, a really low three-quarter slot delivery up to 97 with a plus sweet with a, with a plus slider that, that has sweeping traits to it. Um, I know it's a little relievery right now, um, mm-hmm. but it's a super, super quick arm electric stuff. Um, some, I mean, the Northeast high school crop of arms is, I mean, it's got a chance to go down as a really, really interesting and, and I'd say most, I, I'm trying to figure out how to word it, but there's a really good crop that got selected between Hero Wyatt, Josh Noth, Thomas White, yes. Alex Clemmy. Um, that's impressive a, depth from the from the area for sure for that demographic. Yeah, it's an impressive quartet. So I like getting Wyatt um, with their fourth overall pick. I know that they'll they'll probably try and start him a little bit, but I think at worst, mm-hmm. again, like some of these guys we've talked about, um, even with his present stuff and fastball slider combination, where I think both right now for me right out as plus pitches i think he's got a chance to be um someone that is a is a really effective reliever yeah and and right after hero wyatt it's funny we're kind of inverting our roles here you hyping up the the high school player and me going on to the college pick but in in the fourth round (laughs) getting hunter owen i I was kind of shocked that owen didn't get selected inside the top 100 picks i thought there was a a real case for him to be the first college left-handed pitcher off the board and the fact that they signed him here for essentially slot value. I think they use the, the 2,500 signing bonus contingency on him, but I, I believe this is for, for Hunter Owens purposes, a slot deal. I, I just think he has a ton of traits that, that you really like. I mean, starting with the physique and the frame, it's six foot six, 260 pounds, just this workhorse build over the years uh, in college, he really improved his control the production this spring was was pretty phenomenal. It's an above average fastball, has been up to 97. The slider has been a plus pitch at times. It got to the point this year where people were putting above average control on him. So, I mean, that fastball slider, 
He's got a solid curveball and a changeup. Like it's a pretty solid pitch mix with good control, with physicality. I wonder how much just the health questions factored into this. He did miss some time with shoulder soreness. I obviously don't have access to the details of whatever MRI or, or medical information that he submitted to teams. And maybe it's as simple as that. But if he's healthy, I like him quite a bit more than fourth round pick here. And I think it's a great one for Kansas City. So that that's one that I'm fascinated with as well. Another obvious name that jumps out is Jared Dickey in the 11th round. Um, obviously with a 570,000 signing bonus, uh, he, he was, he was a lot better than where he actually was picked significantly over slot here. Uh, although I think again, like good on the Royals for basically saving 150,000 on your pool to get Jared Dickey with this pick, he would have been one of the best players available at this spot on our board. Um, another player who has dealt with some injuries, but when he's been on the field, he's been quite good chance for above average hit tool solid power um i'll be intrigued like where they play him defensively or where he he settles in um but yeah like getting him in, on day three i thought was another like surprising value pick here for kansas city <laughs> yeah you stole my the the jared dickey pick was another one getting him in the mm-hmm. 11th i know granted it was for a um a pretty big above slot deal or over slot deal um but i think the fact they're able to get him where they did um that's a that's a great spot and him along with Rockefort, um he's also someone that's been producing in low a i think mm-hmm. the calling card with dicky <clears throat> excuse me has long been his bat to ball skills and and feel for the barrel it's a really it's an interesting setup at the plate um yeah. raised front elbow um but i mean he makes it work he's got quick hands line drive type of guy with the knack to to find a gap or put the ball over the fence, but he's going to be a hit over power guy at the next level. And I think that the only question mark for him is going to be defensively where he ends up. I know he caught a lot at Tennessee this year. Um, he's also got experience in the outfield. Um, I think long-term he might end up in a corner outfield spot, probably left field. Yeah. It um, looks like most of his time so far in pro ball has been left, although he's played a little bit of right as well. I, I would be curious to see if, if he plays catcher at all, it seemed like it was more of an uphill battle for that one. But the fact that he's played some in college at least makes it intriguing to think about. Yeah. I, I again, I think long-term he's going to be a, a hit first left fielder, which mm. um, I know defensively, there's not a, a ton of upside in that type of profile, but again, with someone like Dickey with that track record or performance um, I know that they probably felt pretty safe about him carrying it over professionally um, in which he has so far, and then and then going down into the 14th with maybe one more day three sleeper is Mason Miller, 6'3 left-hander out of um, Florida Gulf Coast, was a big name in high school, had draft interest um, coming out of high school, and struck out 35 and 25 innings for Florida Gulf Coast. Command and control have always kind of hindered him a little bit so far in college, but it's a pretty big arm talent. I think you're betting on the upside here. Uh mm pretty low floor but a chance to to potentially strike gold so someone that i'll have circled to keep tabs on um once he gets healthy yeah another player i like on day three is logan martin and and as i'm we're kind of talking about this royals draft class i think like high risk high reward is even more acceptable as a definition because martin is another player who had some injury issues this season in 2023 was cut short by injuries um, but again, when he's been on the field, it's been pretty impressive stuff. It's like 93, 95 fastball up to 98, good riding life, uh, pretty solid strikeout rate with that pitch. He was with Kentucky 
this spring, but he was the conference pitcher of the year in 2022 with Division III Sewanee, Tennessee. So kind of intriguing background for him. Slurvy breaking ball that generated a lot of misses this spring. So if he's healthy, if he can throw a little bit more strikes in the future, it's intriguing stuff there. And they did sign him for just under $300,000 in the 12th round. So that's another interesting name for the Royals. Um, I believe they signed all but two of their players in this draft class, the 19th and 20th rounders. They did not sign, but uh, those are kind of all my thoughts on Kansas city. Have any, any final thoughts for you, Peter? Um, I think again, looking down the board, it's another college lefty that I think getting him for a hundred K. Um, I mean, he's older for the class. He's, he's already 22, but Connor Oliver, six, two left-hander from Miami, Ohio was really good for the Red Hawks, 102 strikeouts in 78 innings with a three, eight, nine ERA. Um, all three, all really all four of his offerings that he, that he threw, um, had a miss rate of 30% and up, including his fastball. Um, That's pretty fastball be, yeah, fastball be 89 and 92, um, slider and changeup are both, um, pretty effective. Uh, some pitches that I, that were called a cutter more are kind of just a shorter slider. So I wouldn't say he throws a, maybe a true cutter, but changeup and slider is it's an effective secondary combination. So um getting him really for for nothing in the 17th that's i think a good pick yeah awesome well that that wraps it up for us for the al central division um two down four more to go um but i think this was fun peter Uh, what do you have coming up anything to plug on the site for listeners moving forward absolutely no so the top 100 transfer pieces up there as well as the top 50 cape which is 11,000 words of reports um and also <laughs> rankings which <laughs> which everyone likes and then also there are transfer portal winners and losers i highlight i think it was five winners five losers and then just mentioned and gave a shout out to a couple of other winners so that's all up there there'll be more stuff on the draft side and then as we kind of lurch into the 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 college fall ball season starting up we'll get early returns on some of the more notable guys who made it to campus um out of the draft and then also have some of these these transfer portal guys have looked in their new home so there will be more stuff on the horizon coming up absolutely it's uh, there's always something going on in the baseball world here at ba that's the beauty of, of kind of looking at the game from really every level so uh, the fact that the college season is not in swing certainly does not mean there's not a lot of college action happening. Um, so be on the lookout for more stuff for the 2024 draft class, like like Peter said, fall coverage, um, and maybe you'll maybe you'll be able to actually enjoy some some downtime too, Peter, as we get ready for for fall ball and maybe some prospect handbook season as we get closer to that time of year. But um, for Peter, Absolutely. I'm Carlos. Thank you guys for listening to another draft podcast. We will be back soon with another one. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.